Janan, let me ask you, please, to pray with me. Our Father in heaven, again, amazed we are that we have before us the very word of God. I pray that we uh, approach it just like that as the word of God. That we listen well and we speak of it in a way that is right and true with all the reverence that it deserves. And I pray, God, that as your living and active word, it would expose us and expose in us that which is false, expose to us that which is true. And Father, I pray that you would work in us in such a way to expel all that which is false, bring to us all that is true, And work it in us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Proverbs, please, and chapter 4. Proverbs, please, and chapter 4. I want to read verses 20 to 27. And concentrate our attention primarily on verse 23 this morning. Proverbs in chapter 4, please. Hear the word of God. My son... Be attentive to my words, incline your ear to my sayings, let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for their life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. In a week or so, I'm going to get back to finishing First Thessalonians and probably move us into Second Thessalonians as the spring comes. But um, today, it's traditional on this last Sunday of the year to do one of two things. I'm going to try to do both. But to do one of two things, that is to have us look back to the year spent or have us look forward to the year to come. So I want to put an expression, really a proverb, in our minds, our hearts, that will enable us to consider, enable you to consider, this past year. And hopefully enable you, us, to consider a bit the year to come. And so the questions I want to have in our minds as we walk through this, especially at the end, have I done this? Am I doing this? All right? Have I done this? Am I doing this? And, 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 and this book of Proverbs promises wisdom. That's the sense of the title, proverb, a wise saying. Proverbs are wise sayings, the intent of which is to enable us to live wisely, to live successfully, really. But we have to be careful, not successfully, as we understand that from an American culture uh, definition, but, but from God's perspective, to live successfully by way of God's understanding of success. 
what is really right and what is really good and what is really best and, and all of that. And so these wise sayings, you see, uh, come to us. And, and, and we know that wisdom isn't the same thing as just being smart. You can be smart, be really bright, brilliant, and yet lack wisdom. Wisdom is different than just having knowledge. One can have tremendous storehouses of knowledge, but yet be unwise. To be wise means that we know the best goal, the best end, the best purpose. And we know the best means for getting there. That's the sense of wisdom. The best end, the best goal, the best purpose, where we're headed, if you were the best place. And then the best means to get there. And so you can tell by that understanding of wisdom that wisdom has a significant moral component. We're looking for that which is best. We have to evaluate all the options And wisdom knows the best ones. You have to evaluate all the ways to get there. And wisdom knows the best way to get there. So if that's true, then we realize that that wisdom is of God. Because God is the one who determines what is best. He's the one who defines, really, what the best end is. And so wisdom can only be expressed by way of godliness, by way of following after God. That's this sense of wisdom. Are you with me? Are we, are we good? I know it's, this is always the quietest Sunday of the year. I don't know why, but it just is. Everybody's kind of on overload from the week. But it's really true, you see. That's the, the way that it is. And so when we think of this wisdom as a moral component, this wisdom is coming from being of God, then we come to the proverb that I didn't read, but but you know it. And that proverb is what? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When we come to this place of fearing God rightly, then we, we were right at the the, the, the foothills, if you will, of wisdom, the beginning of it. It's, this is, this is, it's open to us at that point, prior to the point, wisdom isn't. We must fear the Lord. Now, you know that there are two aspects of the fear of the Lord. One which leads to wisdom, one which doesn't. Because, you see, there is a fear of the Lord, of, of, of seeing him and realizing his authority and realizing his, that he's the judge and not wanting that authority in our lives. We want to go our own way. That isn't fearing God rightly. That's fearing his authority and running from him. Or seeing his, the fact that he's judge. And saying, I don't want his evaluation of my life. I want to have my own evaluation of my life or someone else's. And so, so we run from God. That isn't fearing him rightly. That's suppressing what is really true about God. And we can suppress that in all kinds of ways. We can do it very subtly. We can do it very violently. We can very do it very quietly. We can do it very obviously to, to, to suppress that truth, to really run from God. Some 
and call themselves atheists, saying, I don't believe in God at all. Why worry about it? Some agnostics even to say that, well, who can be sure about this? And so, so, so I just, I just really don't know. Others deistic or deist. They realize, oh yes, there is a God, but, yeah, but he, he set all of this up and, and now he's really not bothering himself with it. So it's really up to us then to, to define what is right and wrong and to bring all that about. And, and, and there's this sense often of defining God in our own image. To say, well, God is like this. I believe in a God like this. And usually the God that we define is a God that likes us very much, the way that we are. And it's quite manageable to us in our own lives. And so we like that. And so we're going to have a God like that. Well, that's very unwise. Because you see, God is. He is, if I could quote the athletes in America, who he is. Right? He, he is. He isn't who we make him to be he simply is who he is and we must receive him take him like that and when we see him like that you see who he really is and we see his authority we bow before it that's the right fear of god when we see his judgment we confess before it was the prophet Isaiah, I think, who had all of these put together in a nice package of really fearing the Lord. He saw the Lord high and lifted up. He saw the Lord as, as who the Lord is, as king of kings, lord of lords, as authority, as judge. He saw all of that. And he didn't run, but he fell on his face. That's the fear of the Lord. He says, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the Lord of glory. He thought, I'm going to die. I'm going to burst. I'm going to fall apart here in the midst of all of this. Why? Because I've seen who God is. I've seen who I am in relationship to him. And therefore, I get it. I understand everything that's true of me is unclean in this presence of God. And so I'm sure I'm going to die. And so he knew who God was, he knew who he was, and God brought cleansing to him from the coal of that altar. That's the real fear of the Lord. When we come there, then we know ourselves, as Jesus put it, to be poor in spirit. We know we have nothing in and of ourselves to commend ourselves to God. In fact, we mourn because we realize that everything in us is the opposite of that and deserves judgment, and so we mourn over our sin that creates in us a meekness not a weakness but a meekness we really understand who we are in the presence of God and we're humbled before him because we know who we are before him he's God we're not and you see once we get there then we're right at wisdom because we're really teachable because we know that we don't know it. And we know that he does. And so we're there at his feet, yielding ourselves to him. 
And so then we find ourselves be hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Why? Because we know lack of righteousness is the problem. And so then we realize we must be righteous to be in his presence. And so we hunger and thirst after that. He gives us righteousness and works it in us. And then you see, we realize that we must be pure in heart. That's the problem, isn't it? That heart thing. Pure in heart. And we know this. We know that when the Bible speaks of the heart, it doesn't speak as we often do just in our casual language. It doesn't, the Bible doesn't mean just our emotions. Though it does mean what moves us. But it isn't just emotions. It includes our minds, how we understand what we think. It includes how we feel all of that Put all together to bring us to convictions of what we love and what we hate. What we respect and what we don't. What we despise and what we love, you see. All of that. And that moves us. That's our very life then. We can see our hearts expressed by the way that we speak, by the way that we live. That's why sports writers are often speaking of the heart of a team, right? The heart of a team. How they understand what they believe, what they, what they love, their passion. You can see that played out. Uh, for our children, we need to learn our children's hearts. What's true of them. Their real life, if you will. It's good for a teacher to know the heart of his students. It's good for a person in business you know the heart of their employees what do they like what's their life really like how will they respond in various situations given what they love what they hate what they despise what they respect all of that their convictions to really know that you see so jesus would say out of the abundance of the heart we just read from luke chapter six out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks it comes out of us what's in our hearts which is by what we speak out of our mouths, but the, the very way that we live, we can tell what's in our hearts. Again, that's the problem. The Bible speaks to us of, of the problem of the heart. Genesis in chapter 6, after Adam and Eve sinned because of the impact of sin, the influence of sin in our lives, it corrupted us, polluted us, if you will. And thus, we read in Genesis the thoughts and inclinations of their hearts, our hearts, were evil continuously. The prophet Jeremiah speaks of the heart. He says it's deceitful. You can't really trust it. You can understand it. It lies to us. Our hearts really lie to us because of the sin that's there. It tells us something is good when it isn't. It tells us something is best when it's not. Our hearts can deceive us because of this sin. We find uh, in the book of Romans, for instance, the sense of the hardness of, of heart. In Romans in chapter 1, verse 21, For although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened because they didn't understand, wouldn't understand. So their hearts were in fact darkened. We, we read in 
Ephesians and chapter 4, the apostle writes, verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. See, they have a wrong understanding of life. And by Gentiles there we could substitute unbelievers. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, due to the hardness of their hearts. They've become calloused and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So we we see all of that. And so what's really needed is a change of heart if we're going to fear God. And he is the one who brings that about. And we know that he's brought that about when we find ourselves drawn to him, inclined to him, to really believe in him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To believe in him. Father, the very one who loves and sends his Son to redeem. Son, who comes to redeem us. And when we believe that, what we're saying is, I need to be saved. I need to be redeemed. And we, we believe in God. Father, Son, we said, I need to be redeemed. I'm a sinner. I'm hopeless, helpless. We come to that point. That's a great miracle of God to bring us to that point and say, yes, I'm a sinner in need of this redemption. I believe in God the Father, God the Son, who, who died that I might be forgiven my sins, who lived that I might have life. And I believe in God the Holy Spirit, this very one who is the very presence of God with us, who brings life, who works in us. We may know him and live in a way that's pleasing to him. All of that, I believe that when we get there, you see, we say, yes, this heart has been changed by God that I may fear him. Thus, I know his Wisdom, believe his wisdom concerning him, concerning me. And thus this salvation comes. And now this word in Proverbs in chapter 4, verse 23. I just want to pluck this up just for this morning. Give, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. He says, this is where life comes. And, and so thus, keep it with all vigilance. Guard it, watch this Heart of yours. John Flavel, 17th century English pastor, puts it like this. He says, The keeping and right managing of the heart in every condition is the great business of the Christian. He says, This is our business to keep the heart. John Owen, another 17th century English theologian, puts it like this. Hereupon do all events depend, the heart being kept. The whole course of our life here will be according to the mind of God, and the end of it will be the enjoyment of him thereafter. This being neglected, that is, keeping the heart, life will be lost. Life will be lost here as unto obedience, and hereafter as to glory. But why? Why must we keep the heart? I mean, after all, it's God who changes the heart. So, so, so why doesn't he just keep it too? I mean, 
Can't we just say, this is your deal, so therefore do it? And the answer is, it is his deal. And the answer is, he does continue to do it. He doesn't abandon us in the keeping of the heart, but he engages us. I mean, once the heart has been changed, he says, now, this is who you are. Now be it. Live it. You're not passive in this any longer. You're, you're in this. Your heart has been changed. Now be diligent about it. Be diligent to keep it. Be diligent so that you do follow after the wisdom of God. Don't let this wisdom of God leak. Don't let this wisdom of God be diluted. Maintain this. Deepen it. Grow in it. You're in it. We say it's all of God. We reformed people like to say that. That's true. But when we say it's all of God, that doesn't leave us out. Because we're in him. And so here we are, engaged in this. It's a great thing in ancient Israel. You know, if you lived in ancient Israel, you couldn't hardly escape God. The reason you couldn't is that if you really were going to be an Israelite, then when you got dressed, you had to think of God. Because he told you some rules about dressing. And when you ate, you had to think of God because there were rules about eating. And, and, and when you worked, there were rules about that. So you had to think about God in the midst of that. And, and if you lived close at all to the temple, you would smell the presence of God, if you will, and his goodness and his grace and the sacrifices and all that. You couldn't escape him. Everything engaged you about God. And it shouldn't be less now that Christ has come. We don't have the rules and regulations in the same way, the sacrifices and so forth and so on. But that doesn't mean that we should be less conscious about who God is and the presence of God in our lives and being engaged in him. And so this word, keep the heart, we should simply say, well, of course, well, of course, we should be vigilant about about that which is in us, that truth that is in us. We, We shouldn't Drift away from it, dilute it at all, but we should be vigilant about keeping, watching the heart. You know, in the ancient cities, one of the most important people in the ancient city was the watchman, especially at night. Because you see, the city was most vulnerable at night when it was dark and you couldn't see the enemies and when everyone was asleep. And so the watchman had to be very sensitive to every sound, every sight, everything. And if there was a sound or a sight or something, he needed to be vigilant about that and deal with it. He couldn't just overlook it. He had to deal with every situation as it arose because that might just be the the beginning of, of something deadly. And he would watch and he would wait and he would see and he would act. And that's how we're to be about our hearts that God has made new, you see. We're to watch them to make sure that no evil befalls us, that comes into our hearts, that creates any hardening at all, that diminishes our fear of him, that causes us to well up in pride or self-sufficiency, or causes us to doubt his love for us, or causes us to doubt his presence among us, or causes us to doubt his goodness, you see. When those begin to happen in the context of our lives, we're to take notice of those things. We're to be sensitive to those things. 
No, no, that you see, when we find ourselves being disobedient, we should say to us, oh no, I'm in danger here. I'm going against the very things of God. I'm going against his wisdom. I'm going against all that he has put in my heart. And the danger of our hearts being then hardened, calloused towards him. Uh, This passage in Philippians chapter 2, we know it well. Verse 12, the apostle writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, God has worked in. He doesn't stop working. But he says, now that I've worked in, engage. Now that I've worked in, participate. Now that I've worked in, work it out. Don't stop. Be involved in all of this. And to be careful, you see, because there are enemies of our hearts, our own sinful inclinations. We know them. I know we like to sit in church and pretend that they don't affect us, but they really do. That's why we have a prayer of confession, isn't it? So that we can acknowledge before one another words out loud that we're sinners. We get it. We understand. We know that. I confessed in front of you. You confess in front of me something. And we know that. I confess to you that there are things which I haven't done which I ought. And there are things which I have not done which I ought not have done. I just, you know that. It's just true. And these are enemies of our hearts. And the world reinforces those sinful inclinations in various ways. That's why the apostle John would write in 1 John in chapter 2, in verse, six, verse 15, he says, Don't love the world and the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father isn't in him. Verse 16 then. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. See, the world reinforces the desires of our sinful nature, this flesh, you see. It, it says, follow your, your passions. Follow what you think is right and good. And the world says, yes, go there. Follow that. Don't consider God, but follow that, you see. You think you should leave your wife? The world says, follow that. Your sinful inclination. Say, oh, yes, I should because... No, 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 no. No. You see, the world reinforces the sinful inclination. You think you should gossip, put others down so you can be raised up? Oh, follow that, the world says, you see. You think you should be bitter and not forgive it. The world says, follow that, Right? And our sinful inclinations take a hold of that and say, sure, why shouldn't I live like that and not forgive? Why, why, why should I forgive them so readily and easily when they've offended me this way? No, 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 no. Our flesh likes that. Our sexual passions. The world says, follow your sexual passions. However they define you. Wherever they lead you. That's right and that's good, you see. Sinful inclinations grab a hold of that and say, yes, of course, yes, that's the direction I'll head. And that hurts, damages our hearts, you see. 
and evil one behind all of this, these these powers and principalities as it's put in the scriptures, rulers and authorities and, and powers of this present darkness, the spiritual forces in heavenly places. So, so, so we get it. We understand. Guard our hearts. There's enemies against us. So, so, so what does that really look like? What does that look like in our lives? Let me go to another sermon. Not one of mine, but one that's in the Bible. Uh, and we have it here in this letter to the Hebrews, as the author of Hebrews preaches. And let me find just a couple of things here, I think, that will help us. He begins this sermon, very early on, by warning about drifting. Notice chapter 2, verse 1. He says, therefore, we must pay, pay close, a much closer attention to that which we have heard, lest we drift away from it. One of the great dangers of the heart is that we drift. Now you know what that looks like with a boat. It's supposed to be tied to the dock. You know, at first it just sort of sits there. But then as the waves begin to rock back and forth, it starts to move. And nobody really notices because it, it doesn't move that much necessarily. But, but after a while you look out and you say, where's the boat? Right? It's drifted away. You know that about our own hearts, don't you? It's easy for us to drift away. To think, oh, I don't need whatever it is to pray. To be in fellowship with other believers. To read the scripture. I don't need to obey this. That's a little picky. I don't need to obey this. I can... And over time, you see, little by little by little, just like sheep, we kind of nibble our way lost. You know, sheep do that. They're grazing in one part, and then there's the fence, of course, to keep them in. But, but they put their nose over the other side and, and then nibble a little bit over there. And it doesn't seem so bad and everything as well. And then, oh, they get a little further out. And then one little, you know, whatever leg uh, through the fence and a little bit further out. Another little leg through the fence. And pretty soon half the body's out. But, you know, they're still half in, half out. And then after a while, oops, there's some really nice, and so they, oops, they're out the fence, but not that far. And then after a while, where are they? It's that kind of drifting, that drifting that we do, you see. We know it in marriage, oh, I'll have lunch with this woman, it'll be all right. We know it in the context of spiritual life. Oh, my kids are in sports right now, and, and so it's really hard for them to be in youth group, and this is the last time they'll be able to play this sport, so, so I'll keep them, uh, we'll, we'll make up for it some other way. And they, we drift. My, I'm really busy. My only time to sleep in, my only time to really rest is Sunday, so, so I'll just take this semester, and, and I'll stay home, and, and that'll be better for me. And we Drifter. I, I know I should be in that Bible study, but, but, but you know, it's, I don't like it anymore. It's the same old, same old. And so I, I don't really need to go to that anymore. I, I don't like what we're studying this term, or I don't like what we're doing. I don't like the people in my small group. And so, so I, I, I can really do something else on my own or somewhere else. And so we drift, don't we? Just be careful. Don't drift. Then in chapter 3, puts it like this. Verse 12, take care. Brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. 
but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Same thing, you see. Sin deceives us. It lies to us. It says, this is good when it isn't good. It says, this sexual expression is good when it isn't good. It says that this greed is good when it isn't good. It says that this relationship is good when it isn't good. It lies to us and we become deceived. And our hearts, you see, pay for that. He says, no, no, no. You need to guard your hearts. And so the question is, how do we guard our hearts against that kind of drifting? How do we guard our hearts against that kind of deception? And you know the answer to this. I hope most of you do. You should be be thinking it in your mind. It comes up next in chapter 4 in Hebrews. You might not have known that, but but, but you you know what keeps it from us. Because the author of Hebrews in chapter 2 says, pay much closer attention to what we've heard. We've got to hear it. In chapter 3, he says, exhort one another every day. We've got to exhort one another with this. What are we to listen to? What do we exhort each other with that keeps our hearts? Well, the very word of God. Notice, he says, in chapter 4, verse 12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the hearts. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him, to whom we must give an account, you see, by the very word of God. It's alive, this word of God. It's not like any other word. It's not like any other book. It, it's alive. And, and it comes, you see. And when it comes, it, it cuts, it digs deep within us. And it, 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 it exposes our drifting. It exposes the deceit of sin. And so we need to listen And not stop listening to this word. We have to hear it. We hear it as we read the scripture. We hear it from the the lips of each other. As we exhort one another. As long as it's called today. Isn't that a wonderful expression? Because what's today? Well, today. What's tomorrow? Well, tomorrow will be today. Uh, You know, it's always, in a sense, till Jesus comes today. And so, listen now. We need to be diligent, vigilant, relentless about that. That's why we put these little things in your your bulletins. I know that people love to check off things, you know. But it isn't just a check off thing so that at the end of the day, end of the year, you've checked them all off. Chances are none of us ever checks them all off, right? But the truth of the matter is we know that this is a helpful tool, something to get us every day, each day. Whether it's this or something else. Hearing, listening to the word of God. Why? Because we're prone to drift. And we're prone to be deceived. No matter how strong we think we are. Prone to be deceived. We need the very word of God. And then chapter 6. This this confusing at times, but really scary passage. Where he writes this, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith to God, and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we'll do if God permits. For it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then to... And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucified once again the Son of God to their own harm. And holding him up for contempt. Of course, 
This passage has been spoken of various kinds of ways of, of the history of the church. But if nothing else, this, to tell us that there's a danger of superficiality. There's a danger of going through the motions. There's a danger of, of participating in the life of the church without your heart being in the life of the church. And the life of the church is Jesus. The life of the church is the gospel of Christ. And so you see, in all of that, there can be in our lives a superficiality of going through the motions of it. And you see what happens as we go through the motions and our heart isn't in it. Then you see, after a while, we say, I can get all that I'm getting elsewhere. This is really nice, but I can find another community of people that I like to be with. I can find another community of people that affirms me. I can find a, another community of people with whom I can I can be nice to and be nice to others and, and all will be well. And, and, and you'll look back then upon the church and you'll say, that didn't really work. It really wasn't necessary. I have all of this and you'll never return. That's superficiality. And the question is, what's the remedy to that superficiality? Well, he goes on to lay it out in his sermon. And he says the, the remedy is, is Jesus. The remedy is the covenant that God has made. The, the, the remedy is, look at this. Look what you need. You need someone to represent you before God, a high priest, who can stand in your place before him. Uh, you need someone like you yet without sin. You need someone to come and to take your sin, the guilt of it, and pay it. And this Jesus did that. So, so know that. This Jesus did that. He took by his own blood and he went into the holy of holies in heaven, not on earth, but in heaven. And he, and he presented it there that, that those who confess, that those who repent, that those who believe will be forgiven their sins. This is what you need, you see. It's deeper than all these little outward acts. It's a matter of the heart. Believe this. And this very one who is like you now intercedes for you. He knows you. So pray. Pray to this one who knows, this one who understands, this one who sympathizes, this one whose throne is a throne of grace and mercy. That's what you need. And so even as that word comes to us, should blow away the superficiality. Show us who we really are, who he really is, what we really need, what he really did. So we may trust him. And then in chapter 10, he, he speaks to this church about persecution and suffering. Verse 32, he says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which is a great reward. You see, here he gives us both. He gives us the, the difficulty. He gives us the remedy. He says the difficulty may well be persecution that comes your way because you're a believer in Jesus. 
I don't know either. Just deal with it, all right? It's good. Um, might be the Lord saying I'm finished, but I'm not going to go there yet. Maybe if I move that. I don't know. Maybe if I move this. Maybe if I take this off here. Put it in there. Let's try that. There you go. Better now. Um, but, um, but this sense, you see, of persecution that comes our way. And that can hurt, if you will, our hearts. We think, God, if I really do belong to you, if you're really this great one, why are we suffering so? Why are they against us? Why do we seem powerless against them? What keeps our heart in the midst of that? Real joy. Where can be the joy in the midst of that? The answer is in this word. Do you realize they were experiencing the plundering of their property? But, but, but do you realize that we, you, I, we believers in Jesus have a better possession than anybody can ever take from us? We have a possession that they can't take. Whatever it is that they take, the possession we have is way better, infinitely better than, than, than what they've taken. They didn't really get the good stuff. I remember years ago, Karen and I, when I was in graduate school the first time in the economics way back uh, in Tallahassee, we were renting for a year the house of a history professor who had gone on sabbatical in France. And so it was a really nice house, and it looked like we must have something worthy to be stolen. But we didn't. They had put all their stuff in storage. We had our couch and bed. And that was pretty much it. And so it was broken into, and we just laughed because all they took was chocolate chip cookies. Now, that's valuable, But they didn't get anything really good, right? They didn't get the good stuff. And so you see, no matter what they take, no matter what the world takes, the joy for us is knowing that they can't take what is really valuable. They can't take our inheritance. They can't take really our souls. And so he says, what I want you to do is meditate on that and, and, and read about all the people who were suffered, who suffered before you and kept their faith. And so he puts it like this in verse 39. And he said, And these, though commended through their faith, didn't receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should be made perfect. And so just like Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was sent before him endured the cross, enduring the shame. Why? Because they took all of that from him, but they didn't take the deep abiding possession of all the souls he was saving. So for the joy that was set before him, he did. And then finally this, chapter 12. He speaks of hardships. He speaks of the discipline of the Lord. He speaks of hardships. And you know, when we go through hardships, we have to guard our hearts. Why? Because we think, God, if you really love me, if I really do belong to you, why am I suffering like this? Why am I going through this? Why, why, um, why do I hurt so? And we have to be cautious and to be careful. And we don't drift and we don't become deceived by that, by that hardship, by that, pers- by that difficulty. In the way, of course, that 
we endure that and maintain is by knowing that God is wise, that God is all-powerful, that God is loving, and that he is our Father. And he knows the very best. And he knows the very best way to get us there. And he will bring it about that nothing can separate us. No amount of difficulty, no amount of persecution, nothing can separate us from the love that he has for us in Christ Jesus. And we know that because he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also along with him graciously, kindly, wonderfully give us all things? And we say, well, of course, since he's given to us Jesus. As you look back, have you kept your heart? As you look forward, will you keep your heart? By way of this word, this truth, by way of these prayers through to this one who sympathizes with our weaknesses, will you Cease the superficiality that might be creeping into your own spiritual life. Right? Will you understand those who are against you and keep the joy? Because you know in the times of difficulty, will you realize that this sovereign God is your heavenly Father? who loves you and knows the very best. Let's pray. Father, do pray for me, for us, that uh, you would enable us to keep our hearts. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. Please receive this now as God's benediction. May I from the sermon of the author of Hebrews. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. And this through Jesus Christ our Lord. And together let us sing. And all of you is more than enough for all of me, for every thirst and every need. You satisfy me with your love and all I have in you. More than enough You are my supply My breath of life Still more awesome than I know You are my 
awesome than I know and all of you is more than enough for all of me for every thirst and every need you satisfy me with your love and all I have in you is more than enough you're my sacrifice greatest prize still more awesome than I know you're my coming king you are everything still more awesome than I know and all of you is more than enough for all of me for every thirst and every need you satisfy me with your love and all I have in you is more than enough more than all I want more than all I need you are more than enough for me more than all I want more than all I can see you are more than enough and all of you is more than enough for all of me for every thirst and every need you satisfy me with your love and all I have in you and all of you is more than enough for all of me for every thirst and every need you satisfy me with your love and all I have in you is more than enough and all I have in you is more than enough and all I have in you is more than enough you can go in peace